Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! All right. So, uh, it has just started raining here, but hopefully we'll get through all of this without um, anybody having to deal with the overwhelming Ooh. sounds of a rainstorm coming yes. through my microphone. Awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I honestly... You know, when we record the podcast, we're wearing ear earphones, right? Um, and I I can't tell how hard it is raining, but I'm sure that the mic will pick it up if it gets too loud. So, yeah, yeah, see. yeah. We've had some giant rainstorms here, which are sort of unusual. I mean, we can you know it's not unusual necessarily, yeah. but they are more midwesterny than I would yes. say Virginia usually gets. Yes, the only weird thing about this is we were expecting it all afternoon, and ah. now it has finally hit. Nope, I but, think right now we're good. Um, our yeah. internet has just randomly been going out occasionally okay. recently, the past couple days. Um, oh, but, interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, yes. well. I will not name the company that I feel is responsible. <laughs> Boo! <laughs> we're just saying, we yes. have to have them because that is what our apartment building offers. Yeah, most places, there's not that big of a choice. Right. We've seen trucks, though, for the other company we would like in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And the office of our apartment building has the other company. So. Oh, interesting. Yes, yes isn't it? <laughs> How these things work. Yes. Okay. Ah, well. All right. So let's see. Last time we talked about puppets. Yes. And Ooh, can we take this moment to give a shout out to Manual Cinema in Chicago? Because I think we forgot sure. to last time. Um, and they do shadow puppets. They're brilliant. And the Candyman trailer, uh, some of you may have seen, they did the shadow puppet Candyman trailer. Um, and they are brilliant and awesome. And uh, it's their 10 year anniversary. So check out their website. Oh, cool. Yep. I was going to ask, um, what was the name of that theater in the Water Tower that you took me to that does all the puppets, too? Yes. Ah, well, interestingly, that was Looking Glass Theater yeah. with Manual Cinema. Ah, the show that we saw was okay. Mr. and Mrs. Pennyworth. Yeah. Yes. And it was uh, Blair Thomas, who is a fantastic puppet person, um, and also sort of heads up or organized the International Puppet Festival that happens every two years in Chicago. Okay. And that was part of that. Looking Glass Theater uses a lot of that... Um, they're a wonderful movement theater in Chicago. Uh, Red Moon was sort of the brilliant, brilliant puppet theater that preceded Manual Cinema and some other things. And unfortunately, they're no longer in existence. They did some incredible work. Um, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is probably their most famous. They turned this brilliant sort of German expressionist film into this incredible puppet show. Mm-hmm. Um, more of a sort of toy puppet theater, what might be known as, um, but brilliant, brilliant. Um... But Manual Cinema has sort of been the successor to that. And they are specifically sort of, yeah, shadow puppets. Um, and they found its brilliant low-tech way, using overhead projectors to do shadow puppets with live-action shadow. Yes. And, of course, you can use real puppets and real people. Yeah, and so Mr. and Mrs. Pennyworth was Looking Glass show. Yeah. Yeah, and it was created by a Looking Glass member. Yeah, it was it was an incredible yeah. show. Um, if you have been listening to us talk about puppets and been kind of like... Mm, puppets, whatever. 
Um, I recommend trying to go see one of their shows because I have never been so blown away by puppetry. Yes. Yeah, it's... Yes. <laughs> you know... Yeah, it was. Brilliant. I feel like a lot of people, their most experience with puppets is something like, you know, we have a little hand puppet raccoon or something that right. we play with the kids, which right. is fun, but it's, wow, they do so many things. Yes. Yeah, and absolutely. Um, I mean, the Candyman trailer gives you a great sense of sort of what they can do. Yes. Uh, what we manual should link cinema to that. can do. I don't think we did before. No, we definitely will. Yeah. Okay. And we'll link to their website. Um, if we put this up in August, they are running some of their full length stuff throughout the month um, in honor of their 10 year anniversary. But you can always watch some of their shorter videos. Yeah. Um, and absolutely. Yes. If you are anywhere in the vicinity of Chicago, um, go check them out anytime they do things. They travel, um, but also look around. They work with Looking Glass and a number of other companies like that. Mm -hmm. um, and the International Puppet Theater comes through every two years. Um, International Puppet Theater Festival. So um, the sort of unfortunate part is that it would, I think, have been coming through this year. Oh, um, okay. So 2021. Um, so because it was two years ago now. And we saw that four years ago now, almost. Yes, it was the weekend of the Women's March. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it would have been this winter, so I don't know if that will happen, of course. Um, they might have to put it off for a third year, but it's mm -hmm. brilliant, it's amazing. And you can always go to their site and find puppeteers near you who are incredible. Um, yeah. It's a really fantastic Neat. art form. Yes. Yeah, cool. All right. So that was last time. Yes. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so this time we're going to talk about dance drama and physical comedy. Yes. Yes. And then we'll see where we get to. So dance drama. I do want to give a quick shout out to um, the fact that dance drama still exists. So, of course, we all know ballet. I assume we're, mm -hmm. you know, we've probably seen The Nutcracker. Maybe we've seen Swan Lake. Sleeping Beauty. Whatever. We've probably seen Tchaikovsky. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've seen of... um, Misty Copeland dancing on Prince's piano. Ooh. Also awesome. Of, yeah. It's kind 100%. of ballet. I mean... Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Misty Copeland, of course, is amazing in many ways. Partly, of course, because uh, one of the big issues with dance, um, specifically ballet, is race and racism. Yes. And so the extent to which very, very few ballet dancers of color end up as principals, mm -hmm. basically. I mean, um, so Misty Copeland has broken a lot of barriers. Yeah. She's on Instagram and she does a great job of posting about other ballet dancers of color. So if you yes. really want to, I don't know, get keyed more into that particular world, that's a... A great starting place. Yeah. Um, and also, I think we actually talked about this, um, that in Richmond, Virginia, where I am at the moment, there was a photo or a video, I guess, that went viral um, of some young baller ballerinas. Yeah. The feminine. Anyway, young female ballet dancers of color uh, in front of the Lee Monument. Yeah, I saw that. Um, sort of reclaiming. Yeah. And they have started their own, um, I don't know, sort of group, I guess. Yeah. Um, 
and that has been, you know, cool. a sort of way to encourage that. Of course, we're in the South, um, so there are plenty, plenty of dancers of color here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea of supporting them and um, particularly, um, I think, Brown Ballerinas for Change is the name of their mission. Oh, cool. Or okay. Their group. Yeah. Uh, one of our grad students did some artwork to sort of raise money for them. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. So they've started that and also recently um, went viral a video um, of an Irish dancer. Ah, yes. Who's a young woman of color. Yeah, also from Richmond. Um, because Irish dancing is somehow very strong in the <laughs> Richmond community. Um, which I guess is, I mean, a lot of dance traditions are actually. We have some great ballet, Irish dancing, um, Chinese dancing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, dance is definitely a big part of the culture. All of these traditions are traditions that tell stories. Yeah. Right? In their dances. Um, but the Irish dancer, she's amazing. Um, but she did get some racist comments, of course. Uh, but then um, River Dance offered or asked her if she would dance with mm-hmm. them um, when they can come. They had to postpone a, um, a show in Northern Virginia, um, somewhere sort of D.C. suburb, basically. Um, but whenever they can come, she yeah. has been offered to sort of dance with them. Nice. Um, she's really incredible. I mean, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a sort of reminder, right, of people, you know, being out there and the ways in which um, we don't often think of it. But, of course, ballet, um, there's already tons of stuff, right? Dancers being made anorexic Mm -hmm. by the um, sort of supposed requirements of the job, which is ridiculous, right? Um, These are not actual requirements. I mean, the requirement is that you be able to jump really high. Right. Not actually that you'd be super skinny to jump really high. I mean, you need muscles and mm-hmm. so on. Um, but there have been huge issues with that. And, of course, one of the things about those physical characteristics is that they frequently um, automatically um, keep out people of color. Right. Right. Um, and so <laughs> one of the places this was going was Elvin Ailey, um, which, of course, is probably one of the most famous dance companies in the U.S., but also definitely, um, you know, created because people of color did not really have a chance in not just ballet, but sort of the modern dance world at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ailey, in 1960, choreographed what became known as Revelations, um, which has several parts um, and is absolutely a dance drama about the African-American experience. Hmm. And it's brilliant and amazing, and I recommend we'll link to it as much as we can. You should watch whatever you can see of it on YouTube. It's incredible. Um, but it's sort of a reminder of a few things, and one of them is that dance dramas, first of all, are frequently nonverbal. Um, we're actually going to talk, because this is really also a theater conversation, we're going to talk about dance dramas that do have words. Okay. Um, but dance dramas do not have to have words, right? Um, they can be nonverbal, and that also means that there aren't linguistic boundaries, mm-hmm. right? So dance dramas are frequently comprehensible in ways that other things might not be. Um, that doesn't mean you don't need cultural context to understand certain things. Mm-hmm. Of course, one frequently does, right? Um, but nonetheless, they can communicate in a way that um, sometimes words can't. Right. Right. Um, and so this is definitely one of the points of dance overall. 
Um, but also, um, we've talked before. Oh, before I go away, I actually do want to mention uh, Dada Massilio's Swan Lake, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a very interesting take on Swan Lake. Um, a sort of queer take with a cast of people of color. Um, a sort of interesting adaptation. Yeah, so I wanted cool. to throw that out there. Um, a South, it's a, uh, Dada Massilio is a South African choreographer. So, right. wait, before we um, go any farther, I just wanted to clarify. So we have, like... yes. I don't know, ballet, which is entirely dance, right? Um, yes. And then you could, maybe you could have an opera, which is mostly singing, but you have a corps de ballet. Um, yes. Like, I've seen some productions. Um, I saw one of Akhenaten, where they had a really impressive mm-hmm. group of ballet dancers on stage. So, like, mm-hmm. but obviously, like, it's mostly singing, right? Like, the the, mm-hmm. the big the big parts are not doing pirouettes they're right. singing so like when we say dance drama do we mean something like ballet with sometimes with people talking or do is it anything that involves dance in some way or that dance is integral to the story yes dance drama means where dance is really the integral part okay yeah and it's actually one of the reasons so for example um i have not put chinese theater um, under dance drama, mm-hmm. even though it could be, we talked about the fact that you're required to be able to sort of dance and on some level do acrobatics right. and choreography. Um, and the same is certainly true of Kabuki, um, which we also didn't put under here. Um, but arguably, there are other things that are of equal importance in those, mm-hmm. right? Movement, vocal technique. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, acting, right? Um, and... I am going to include no under this category. Japanese, no. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, because the words are extremely important, but the movement is is it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to move. <laughs> um, and most of the words are taken care of by a narrator or by the chorus. Right? So the words are very important, but the the lead actor is an incredible dancer, mm-hmm. essentially. So, yes, yeah, so we're talking about the thing where dance is really the um, primary aspect of the drama. All right. Yeah. Uh, but this is a little different from something like ritual, right, in that it is a story. Mm-hmm. Right. So there could be ritualistic purpose. Some of these dance dramas may have been put on as part of rituals. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are, but, you know, but they are story yeah. based. And there are rituals that might involve dancing. Um, like I've been reading, a, I've been reading a book about Haitian voodoo. Um, but mm-hmm. the ritual isn't carried out as like the dance isn't carried out as part of telling a story it's a ritual to like get somebody in a certain frame of mind to be occupied by a god sort of thing right yes yeah this is a little different from sort of um religious ritual types of dances yeah um so we have talked about sorwana de la cruz Mm -hmm. um already we actually talked about the Americas, so I'm going to be a little bit briefer, but I did want to make sure that we brought these in under dance drama. Yeah. Um, because, so, Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz, 1648 to 1695. Um, she is of Spanish descent, but born, lived, died in Mexico. Right? So she is part of the colonizing people. <laughs> uh, but as a woman who was educated and became a nun, um, 
in large part because she was educated. She wants to maintain her education, her writing, all of these things. Uh, and then she had protectors at court who eventually left and went back to Spain. And at that point, she sort of got shut down. Right. Um, so she definitely was in a society that didn't necessarily appreciate um, educated women, <laughs> let's say. Um you know, Spain of the time is fairly oppressive, particular in the New World, famously yeah. sort of horrifically oppressive, right? This um, is the late 1600s type of... Yes. Yeah. yeah. So this is where, honestly, a lot of things Spain does at this time give the Middle Ages a bad name, mm -hmm. even though it's not quite technically medieval. We have entered yeah. the early modern period officially, Yeah, right? and in other um, countries the, there are definitely women doing a lot of more interesting stuff, including... Absolutely. Ruling parts of what is now Germany. Oh, yeah. Oh, all sorts of things. I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. Really cool people. Um, you know, England has tons of queens, right? <laughs> Famously. Um, obviously, right, Mary and Elizabeth, but then eventually we'll get, like, William and Mary, Queen mm -hmm. Anne, you know, so Victoria, obviously, yeah. right? So England is very used to female rulers in some way. Um, in a way that the U.S. is not, <laughs> interestingly. Um, but Spain is really sort of, you know, tightening the reins on everything, right? Because they are trying to demonstrate their reclamation of Christianity, specifically Catholicism, right? Um, they are obviously, you know, they're fighting the British basically, but, you know, Protestantism, um, they are fighting paganism everywhere they find it to prove that they have reclaimed their place in Europe, uh, their place sort of amongst whiteness and Christianness um, by sort of oppressing everybody else. Mm. Uh, and this is, of course, because the Reconquista, right? right. The um, reclamation, so-called, right? The sort of reclamation of Spain from Islamic rule. Um, so they are really, you know, sort of interested in various forms of oppression. And um, so Juana obviously... <laughs> as a woman to some extent, um, does recognize this, right? She absolutely is a believer in Catholicism, but she recognizes, she does recognize sort of oppression that Spain has wrought on some level, right? So her dance drama that we've talked about before, um, which is known as the Loa, because it's the introduction to a different play, um, known as the sacramental of the divine narcissus mm -hmm. um the auto sacramental which you know we're not going to worry about that nobody does um but the loa her introduction to this other play is um as i've said before right so we can revisit those episodes we'll notate it but it's a four character play basically um and we have um it's very allegorical so you have um an aztec um lady and a Spanish lady <laughs> and an Aztec warrior and a Spanish warrior who of course is a conquistador right um, and the Aztec lady is America the Aztec warrior is Occident of course West um, the Spanish lady is religion and the Spanish conquistador is zeal hmm. um, and we talked before about how she really it's really an allegory of colonialism yeah where zeal and religion sort of go after um, American Occident and zeal really attacks America. And so there is very much the sort of threat of physical violence 
from zeal to America. Mm -hmm. um, and religion steps in and stops it and says we can do this peacefully. Um, so that's the allegory. But the way she stages this is really interesting. Um, and Sorwana actually was at least a little familiar with Nahuatl. Um, so the indigenous language, Aztec language. Yeah. Um, she did include it in some of her poetry. Um, how expert she was personally in it compared to other people she may have consulted isn't quite clear. But she was obviously aware of Aztec tradition. Um, the interesting thing is that dance dramas had been absolutely banned by the Spanish. Right. So the only theater technically that was allowed in the new world was Spanish based. So it either had to be actual Spanish theater or um, auto sacramentals, religious plays that um, were written in Nahuatl. Right. So both of these existed. Um, that being said, the versions of those plays um, that were done in the New World, there is um, one specifically that is, we've talked some episodes ago now about hell mm -hmm. and um, who gets damned, who doesn't. Yeah. And um, there is a play written in Nahuatl um, about the same question, right? Who gets damned, who doesn't? Um, and as we had discussed, um, in the Chester play in England, there's a midwife, mm -hmm. or not a midwife, um, a tavern wife, an alewife. Yeah. Sorry. Um, an alewife who is, it's, she's sort of symbolic of those who are going to be in hell after the harrowing. It's unclear if she just got left there or if she's just arrived. But anyway, she's symbolic of the sort of people who are going to end up in hell. Um, and the reminder sort of the way in which, you know, petty crimes you know, yes. <laughs> the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So, you know, she's cheated her customers and stuff like this and all these little things she's done and they've added up and she got here and she makes this speech clearly to the audience that says, you know, you could be like me. Mm -hmm. And that's the point, right? You could be, you know, the audience can identify with this sort of, you know, every every person who in this case happens to be a woman. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's the Chester play um, in England. But we discussed, you know, the whole point, of course, of these plays was the idea that you could be saved, right? Right up mm -hmm. until the end, right? At some point, it is too late. But up until the end, you can be saved. Um, and the play written in Nahuatl that deals with the same issue, that is not a dance drama at all. It's very, it's a very European play, right? That the Spanish produced in Mexico mm -hmm. um, to... I mean, a lot of people would say this must have been to convert, you know, the local population. This is not really a conversion play. This is a play to scare you into complying with Spanish law, mm -hmm. basically. Um, and the center of this play is this woman. This So again, a female character. And she spends a lot of the play trying to confess. <laughs> and of course, confession is what then you get absolved, right? You right. sort of do your penance and then you're okay. Um, and the priest is so horrified by what he hears from her, that he won't let her confess, and she ends up getting damned. Hmm. And on some level, a European audience would never have put up with that play, because it's so clearly horrific, right? The idea yeah. that a priest wouldn't let you confess, first of all, 
is not how that works. <laughs> um, and second, the whole point is that if you have tried to confess or you've been confessing, then you would not be damned. You know, mm-hmm. you have to be allowed to confess anything. People do. This is the whole point. So the interesting thing about this is that um, she's sort of thrown in hell with snakes and stuff. And one of the really interesting things is that the Spanish obviously view snakes as the snake in the garden, Mm -hmm. right? So um, evil, basically, right? The snake does not mean the same thing to the Aztecs. Right. They have a, they right? have a god, right? Coatli. Yeah, Quetzalcoatl. Yeah. 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 And, you know, that's very, very different. So despite how horrific this play is in many ways and how clearly sexist it is, I mean, you know, the Chester play, it, you can definitely make a very strong argument, I think a very clear argument, that although this woman is an ale wife... Um, it, it is gendered in a way, but it's also very clearly a female every person character. Mm-hmm. And it's a really interesting reminder of how uh, integral women were to sort of the economy, right? Women did do things in the Middle Ages. Yeah. This is a future episode when we'll talk more <laughs> about this, right? Um, but women absolutely did do things, right? And she's there to sort of remind everybody, male and female together, right? That, you know, everyone can sort of end up in hell, whatever it is you do. Yeah. Right? The play in Mexico, right, in Nahuatl, but obviously written by the Spanish, um, is really sexist. I mean, it's just horrifically sexist. Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) this woman who is just um, trying to confess to this priest who's so, so horrified, right, that she's, um, you know, like slept with this guy, right? It's just all of the sexisms all over. And obviously, all the things that this play is meant to be, it's pretty clear that whoever wrote it did not realize what snakes may have meant, right? That snakes may have ultimately had this very double meaning. Right. So what the Spanish want you to see, you being, of course, the Aztec audience watching, um, which is the sort of horror of what you do if you basically disobey the Spanish, right? Um, may have looked very different to them because yeah. it may look like she's going to be saved by an Aztec god <laughs> from the horrors of what the Spanish are doing, Right. Um, or in this case, you know, the horrors of what Christianity is doing. Jesus does not come off super well in this play. I just want to say that uh, the Spanish, you know, don't mm-hmm. don't make him a very sympathetic character in this one. All mm-hmm. right. Um, but it's a really sort of interesting question, right? So obviously, there is a there was a large contingency of Spanish literary um, authors and so on who had a fairly good grasp of the language, but not a very good grasp of the culture. Aha. Uh-huh. Right? <laughs> yes. Um, we don't know how good Sir Wada's grasp of the, of the language was really, right? She clearly had some grasp of the language, definitely, but we don't know how, how sort of quality her Nakwaddle was. Um, but she seems to have had a much better grasp of the culture. Mm-hmm. On some level, which is interesting, because for her, the dance dramas are not horrible pagan relics that need to be quashed, mm-hmm. right? She she sees in them what I said at the beginning of this episode, which is that dance is something that translates everywhere, mm-hmm. right? Everybody dances. Everyone can understand dance. Sure. Right. So she does not see these as these terrible pagan things that need to be squashed. She sees them as 
dances. The Spanish also have dances, right? <laughs> they are different. Obviously, they're very different, but everybody dances. Um, and so her Loa starts out with the Aztec warrior and lady dancing. And they are ostensibly dancing a ritual dance to one of the gods, one of the Aztec gods. Um, they call him the god of the seeds, right? So, you know, it's not clear that Tawana had someone specific in mind, but we would assume sort of um, corn, right, growing. Sure. Um, and the um, Spanish conquistador, right, and lady, so religion and zeal, um, zeal is absolutely ready to just kill everybody, right? Which was kind of the conquistador male view, frequently, at the time. Uh, but religion steps in and says, no, we can do this peacefully. Um, and there's this very long conversation in which religion tries to convince um, Occident and America that Catholicism and the Aztec religion are actually very, very similar. Mm -hmm. Which is really interesting. Yeah. Because... That we take that for granted today, that as a lot of these religions exist in the modern era, there are absolutely a lot of syncretic aspects. Right. Which means aspects of the indigenous religion that became melded with Catholicism to survive and have basically maintained that sort of melding. Right. So a great example would be sort of the Day of the Dead and Halloween. Mm -hmm. Right. These are not the same but they have become kind of syncretic, right? Yeah. They have melded in certain ways um, so that the Day of the Dead could kind of stay alive, right, in in the culture. Yeah. Um, so that was something that was very common. And there's clearly a way in which Sarwana recognizes this possibility. And so religion is convincing, right? All, look at all of these things, she says, in your religion. Um, Catholicism believes all these same things, Right. Um, and then, of course, at the end, she invites Occident, religion invites Occident and America to go see a play about Christianity that will prove to them that this is really the same as Aztec religion. Hmm. And, of course, that play is the actual play that came after this little short introduction, right? The Sacramental of the Divine Narcissus. Nice. Um, so Sarwana is sort of full-length play. Um, but at the end, the whole point is really um, that the four characters, right? So Occident and America and Religion and Zeal dance out together, right? So their dance has melded. The Spanish dance and the Aztec dance have melded, hmm. right? The way Sarwana saw the religions sort of melding. <laughs> um, and have they have danced, they dance out together in this way that is sort of syncretic and obviously supposed to mirror the way Sarwana saw them coming together. Cool. As a culture. Yeah. Um, so the really interesting thing is she, first of all, actually uses what she knew of Aztec dance drama at the beginning and then melds it with Spanish dancing mm -hmm. to create this sort of, right, allegory of the possibilities of melding these two cultures. Right. Yeah. So dancing shows us literally how they can come together. Um, and then they will see in this next play, how the two religions can come together. 
basically. Um, so the sort of brilliant thing about this play is the way in which, first of all, she dramatizes an Aztec dance drama that was outlawed. So we don't really know um, how, you know, how, we don't know quite how much she knew about Aztec dance drama. Yeah. Um, but she clearly had a better understanding of it, probably, than the people who wrote, um, you know, the morality play previously mentioned. Yeah. Um, and then she sort of recognizes the way it relates to, I mean, it's a dance. The Spanish also dance, you know, that there's not something harmful in it. Um, that being said, of course, the reason it was outlawed isn't because the Spanish thought dancing was necessarily terrible. Um, that's Puritans <laughs> who thought that. <laughs> right. Those are Protestants, by the way, not Catholic. Right. Um, it's outlawed because, of course, they were just trying to outlaw the religion. Right. Yeah. Um, but Sorwana's point is that outlawing something doesn't stop it. Right. You have to allow people to adapt. So she is absolutely still interested in colonialism. It's not that she is against colonialism. Right. But she is against the violence um, and the sort of complete erasure that she saw, um, which is interesting. Right. Um, so that's sort of the, the rest of the story on that dance drama. We brought it up before, but that's yeah. sort of the fuller story. Um, I like it. It's so that being, like mm -hmm. optimistic somehow. Yes, like, it's much it's more this, optimistic than it's this wonderful sense most, that like yeah. you could, I don't know, that you could all get together and come to some sort of common understanding, and maybe nobody would have to kill anybody. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that was the goal. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, it happens sometimes. I guess maybe, yeah. It can happen. Yeah. Um, so the only dance drama that we really know of um, that was not stopped out, probably just because of the region it was in, um, is Mayan. And we also talked about this one before. This is the Rabina Laki. Uh, so Mayan, this is sort of Guatemala, essentially. Um, and the Keshe are now sort of the name for everyone who's left the descendants of this region. Yes. Um, but at the time, you know, the different um, aspects of Mayan culture had, you know, they were different groups. Um, and so there are a few different groups. Um, and so this is, uh, Rabin Al-Akim means the man or warrior from Rabinal. This is the Rabin led right? Um, and it existed before the Spanish got there. Um, although the version that's been written down is from after the Spanish got there. Um, but it definitely existed before. And um, how early isn't quite clear, um, but it could have, its origins could stretch back as far as the sort of classical period, which is the 300s to the 900s. Yeah. Um, it may have solidified its form sort of late in the 900s or late in that period, 300s to 900s. And it's about a conflict in the region. So two different um, groups uh, that were allies. <laughs> um, the leader of, so we're the Rabina led, right? And the leader of the group sort of across the valley um, breaks the treaty, um, kidnaps some of their children, right? Attempts to sort of kill their king, right? There are a few different ways in which they break this treaty and try okay. to sort of take over. And um, so the, the warrior from Rabinal um, captures the opposing 
warrior who broke the treaty uh, brings him back. Uh, and this is sort of the dance drama itself, is the capture, first of all, um, of that opposing warrior and then bringing him back uh, to sort of, you know, hear his case, mm -hmm. to try him, right? He's put on trial. Um, he is found guilty. And at the end, he is executed. Um, and so okay. this is the dance drama. It takes place sort of throughout the village in various areas. Um, but most of the performance sort of takes place around... And this is what happens eventually. So um, it probably always sort of traveled sort of from place to place as he's, you know, captured and it goes on. Um, they, the performers wear masks um, and, you know, sort of bright costumes and so on. Um, the masks sort of muffle the words. Mm -hmm. So the point, it absolutely has words and the words are very ritualistic. But it's not so much about having the audience hear them. The audience can tell what's going on by the dancing, right? It's being acted out. The point of the words is very clearly more the ritual of saying them. Okay. Right? So there is something very ritualistic about this. Um, even though it's not clear necessarily that it's religious in the way we would think mm -hmm. of it, which is to say it's not necessarily about the gods. But there is a ritualistic aspect to it. Well, it actually, um, like, you know, the idea of... Um doing a trial uh courtrooms mm -hmm. that like there's tons of ritualistic language associated with that even today right like they're oh, very specific you can watch any courtroom drama yes and, <laughs> i mean like they're super popular Yay. and there's yes. specific Ooh, lines Harry mason getting a reboot yes HBO, right now. oh wow yeah. um and yep. like right there's specific lines that turn up in every single courtroom drama yes um and Find this man guilty courtrooms. yes Yes. Maybe this will refresh your memory. Yes. We have to link to the third no, cartoon. Yes. Yes. Says that. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, okay. But yeah, yeah, I mean, like, I just want to say that um, Keith and I directed Machinal back in the before times. Oh, my God. In like February. Um, and there's a whole courtroom scene. Yeah. And that was written, you know, 100 years ago. <laughs> and um, yeah, courtroom scenes are the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's yeah. Yeah. Haven't changed. Yeah, people. The drama's the same. I'm, it's very dramatic. It's like <laughs> listening to this to the story. It's like people have always really been fascinated with how ju justice works. I think. Yes. Um, yeah, we could have a separate episode on that even because the trial of Jesus in some of the passion plays in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, some of those are incredible. I mean, they are clear commentaries on contemporaneous justice right yeah. what's going on at the time that those plays are written um in england we've already talked about chester switch yeah. up to york um there the trial scenes are very clearly written about <laughs> um henry the fourth actually and um this instance it's actually kind of in one of shakespeare's plays uh we sort of hear about it i think um and sometimes this part is sort of cut, but uh, this one religious figure who um, gets condemned. Um, but Henry IV couldn't find a judge who would condemn him. So he like fires the first judge and the second judge condemns him. And um, in York, which is his home turf. Right. Um, they clearly see what Henry IV <laughs> is doing to them as... You know, York versus Lancaster. Yeah. Right. That's they're the 
York is York. <laughs> York, York, so they're the York. They're yeah. York. You know, that's, uh, and of course, Henry's Lancaster. And um, they very much see it as punishment. Um, and they basically saw it as similar to Christ's two trials in front of Pilate. Wow. Right? And that basically Pilate changing his mind... Um, they basically says the two judges. I mean, and there's some very clear references hmm. to this sort of idea, right? Nice. So the first time is the honest one, and the second time is sort of the, you know, he's kind of been paid off, right? Mm -hmm. So it was actually a different judge. But um, in real life, right, with Henry IV, it was a different judge. But for York, right, these two trials represent that exact thing, right? And Jesus, of course, then being found guilty, similarly, right? He's being railroaded by the system. Yes. <laughs> as it were, right? Yeah. And it's really brilliant. I mean, there's some incredible variations on the trial scenes. My favorite one is an Italian play. It's not in translation. The Ravello Passion. Um, and that trial scene is just incredible. Um, because of the way they sort of talk about justice and the justice of... Um, everyone agrees that it is not just to kill someone who hasn't done anything wrong. Yeah. The problem is that Jesus has to die... Mm. for salvation to happen. Right. And how do you reconcile those two things? It's very philosophical. Yeah. It's a great argument. Um, but anyway, but it's sort of brilliant. Um, and the debate is actually held between the Jewish characters who come down on different sides of um, why Jesus sort of really shouldn't be killed. Mm -hmm. And that is highly unusual, shall we just say, for a yeah. drama, <laughs> to have the Jewish characters having a debate like that um and it's very it's clearly sort of because of what was happening at the time it was one of the few regions that at the moment that was sympathetic to the jews and there were jews sort of pouring over into this area of italy um so it's a it's pretty clearly a kind of commentary on um you know we would as we would say today i mean jesus was in fact jewish right mm -hmm. <laughs> they all were um so it's the sort of reminder of of that yeah but it's really interesting anyway yeah, the idea of justice. And in, so in the dance drama, uh, Rabbi Nalaki, um, the trial is absolutely ritualistic, mm -hmm. right? It's all ritualistic. The capture is ritualistic, um, where sort of the warrior, you know, says, you know, I've captured you. Here are all the reasons why I've captured you, right? Here are all the things yeah. you've done wrong. And then he brings him back to the king. He's like, here's, you know, I've captured this warrior. Here's here are all the things he's done, right? And then they're sort of like, you have done all these things. And they present them all to him and he repeats them all back right so it's very sort of call and response mm -hmm. in a lot of ways okay um which is something the students notice right because they'll say you have done all these things and the warrior will say yes i have done all these things and he'll sort of elaborate on what he did <laughs> and they'll say you've done these things yes i did all these things and he'll elaborate on the next sort of set of things he did and why he did it right why did he take the children why did he try to kill the king why did he break the treaty right all of these different things he's done um so he's accused he responds he's accused he responds um and then at the end, they're like, so you have acknowledged all of this? <laughs> He's like, yes, I, I do acknowledge all this, right? Um, and they're like, so you basically get a last meal and stuff, which is interesting how long that sort yeah. of thing has been a ritual. Um, and so for his last sort of meal and so on, he gets to sort of eat his last meal, drink his last drink. Um, and he sort of imagines that, you know, how he's never going to see his people again um, and stuff like this. Um, and then he gets to dance with the princess who is betrothed to 
the warrior who captured him, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is sort of, you know, as a final whatever, he gets to dance with her. And then he gets let off to be, ex- to be executed. Um, and his, in performance, um, there, the performance um, includes sort of these ritual, you know, ritual objects. If you've seen any sort of Mayan codex, you have seen the warriors with these sort of little round shields and axes, right? Which are mm-hmm. iconic. Sure. You know, but also presumably realistic on some level, right? I mean, warriors did carry shields and sort of battle axes. Um, but these are part of the performance as well. Um, and at the end, uh, the warrior is executed by having his head chopped off. I mean, he's beheaded. Yep. Right? Uh, which makes sense for a warrior. I mean, this is frequently how, even in Europe, right? Nobility in England, for example, got their head chopped off. Sure. Privately, usually. Um, and it was, um, you know, and other people sort of got hung. Mm-hmm. Right? The rare instance of heretics, of course, got burned at the stake. Um, but uh, the translation, so the, right, it was written down around the time the Spanish showed up, shortly thereafter, presumably to preserve it. It may have already been written down, but that's the one we've got. Okay. They managed to preserve that copy. The Spanish were frantically burning all the things they could find. Um, it's sort of amazing we've got what we have, but right. who knows how many things they burned, right? So yeah. they burned countless codices and manuscripts. Some of the ones we have actually got smuggled out. We talked about this a couple episodes previously. Um but basically, so they did manage to write it down in a way that was preserved. Um, and it was then translated later, sort of um, Spanish and French in a few languages. But one of the things about the translations, um, and recently, so Dennis Tedlock has some books that we cited a couple episodes previously when we talked about this. But um, he went down and sort of listened to it and compared what they actually said, you know, to the versions that exist yeah. Um, in translation and um, watch the performance. And he's the one who realized that a few things had changed. Um, so one thing that had changed is that the translations all refer to um, there's so, there's a chorus. You know, so the two main characters are the two warriors, but then the king, the princess, there's a ser- uh, servant who's intersex, who's kind of like the, you know, the chief court yeah. chamberlain or something. Um, so, you know, I say servant, but not really the, you know, the, sort of high servant at court, mm-hmm. right? Court chamberlain or something. But the, and then there's a sort of chorus. Um, and then there are a couple other warriors who are also important, you know, who are the sort of, you know, sidekicks to our main warrior. Sure. Um, and one of them is known as the 12 yellow. The, and this is in the translation. I want to emphasize in the translation, it says <laughs> uh, 12 yellow jaguars, 12 yellow eagles. Mm-hmm. So if you write Mayans, they like to sort of have the numbers frequently were included. So that's, there aren't 12 of them. That's the name, right? The name of the warrior oh, okay. is yeah, 12. 12 yellow jaguars, yeah, okay. right? 12 yellow eagles. Yeah. Um, so that uh, this turns out actually <laughs> 12, of course, an important number in Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the disciples, etc. But in fact, the number was 13, which is an important number to the Mayans. Right. But not a good number in Christianity. <laughs> so that was a change that was made, right? The original, and this mm. presumably, I mean, the, 
they've never changed it. It's always been 13. Right. But the text that was sort of translated and spread around to people um, outside... Outside um, the group. The Rubina led. Yeah, said see. 12, but it was actually 13. So the, the warriors were actually named the 13, right, yellow jaguars, yellow eagles. Um, so that was one change. Another change was that the translations at the end, um, the rival warrior was led off and um, executed on a stone, right, by having his sort of chest opened up, right, his heart pulled out. Okay. Um, and it's not that the Mayans did not practice that, because they did, but this is not what happens in the performance, it's possible that this has changed, but probably not, because it would not have been at all uncommon in a specific instance like this, with a rival warrior like this, for him to be beheaded. Mm -hmm. Right? The same way, as I said, like in England, nobility were beheaded. Um, it doesn't mean that you couldn't ritualistically kill a rival warrior. I mean, that could have been the execution. Right. Um, but there's also no reason that it had to have been, and the fact they perform it today... Hmm. You know, presumably at least as long as the Spanish have been watching it, it hasn't changed that much. Um, and so it has probably always been execution style, but that is not sort of what was recorded. Um, so there are, there were clearly sort of some of these little changes that were made, right, by people watching. Um, the interesting thing is that the reason it survived um, is probably because... Um, they did sort of make it syncretic <laughs> with a few religious Catholic holidays. Hmm. Um, so the main area where it's performed today is outside the church, right? Okay. Um, and it tends to be performed on St. Paul's Day. Um, the church is for St. Paul. And so at the beginning, there's this sort of the usual sort of Catholic tradition of a kind of ritualistic... Um, parade essentially mm -hmm. right um and the um you know the sort of um statue of saint paul is you know in a shrine and it's kind of paraded around and then that's part of the ritual and then you know the this dance drama has become part of the ritual of celebrating saint paul and um there's a really interesting way in which um, these, you know, when you just sort of look at some of the images, these things have clearly become a little syncretic. Mm -hmm. It hasn't really changed the dance drama at all, but it is quite possible that, you know, the, the powers that existed at the time um, may not have been able to understand what the dance drama was really about, right? Because the words, as sort of um, important as they are, are very elaborate, but also muffled behind the mask. Yeah. And who knows how well whoever was watching under would have understood them anyway. Um, and the dance drama itself is fairly sort of um, potentially ambiguous. I mean, it shows one warrior capturing another warrior. You know, there are various things that happen. Um, the idea that, you know, they may have just felt that the fact that this had gotten moved into St. Paul's celebration, that that was sort of enough. Um, there are pretty clearly some ways in which the performance probably convinced whoever was watching that they had really sort of adapted this to St. Paul. Right. Um, and so it may just have been decided that they would leave it alone because, you know, at least they were sort of celebrating St. Paul. So right. might as well let them do it 
however they were going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, it means that this has survived. Um, it also means that it's a really interesting drama because it very clearly has been, it's ritualistic because it's in honor of the ancestors, right? It's a way right. of um, melding with the ancestors and recognizing them and the history of the region. But it's also really interesting because it's about this um, conflict in the region between two groups that if those groups had been united, you have to wonder if it doesn't still kind of continue because there is this sort of question if the groups had been united when the Spanish invaded, you know, would history have been different? Yeah. And, you know, we have to say maybe not. But at the same time, what was once maybe a, you know... um, slightly less slightly just slightly less complicated um memory right um sort of renewed memory of this conflict became a little something more because suddenly this conflict didn't just exist as part of the history of the region Mm -hmm. it existed as a conflict that may have really helped shape the invasion and colonization of the region yeah right what if this what if this treaty hadn't been broken what if these people had you know still been together so there's something really interesting about that as a sort of continued ritual um, dance drama. Yeah. Um, all right. We are running out of time. So I'm going to mention Japan. All right. Because dance drama and no. All right. Um, I just wanted to mention this because we've talked about everything else. Puppets from Japan, of course. And um, Kabuki, which is, you know, yeah. theater, action theater at its greatest. Um, so here we have No, which is the classical medieval theatrical art form from Japan. It is a dance drama. It is a very slow, very controlled dance drama. Um, it takes incredible technique. Uh, the most famous practitioner is Ziyami, 1363 to 1443. Um, his father was a practitioner and was incredibly, incredibly famous, but then he came along and became way 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 more famous even than his father yeah um but he wrote some of the most famous plays that exist today um these plays when you read them they're maybe you know 10 pages long if that but they take about an hour 15 minutes or so in performance hour 20 yeah um because of the slowness um and atsumori is this it's my fave uh it's sort of the hamlet you know I don't want to... You shouldn't compare these things. Obviously, Atsumori came first. But just in the sense of the place that it holds in culture. Okay. Everyone knows Hamlet for Shakespeare. (laughs) Well, Atsumori, right? Everyone knows Atsumori in Japan. Um, It's the classic... The classic tragedy. Right? Um, And Atsumori was a warrior. um, Young warrior. Very noble. Very brave. Played the flute. Um, His side was losing. And these are all sort of real wars that we can... You know, they're very famous, very, very famous wars like like the War of the Roses would be for Mm -hmm. Shakespeare again. Um, So uh, his side, they escape on boats uh, and he suddenly remembers he left his flute when they abandoned the campsite. So he goes running back for his flute. And by the time he gets back down to the shore, the ships have left um, and the other side has basically advanced. um, And so he has to turn back and fight them and he gets cut down. And the guy who kills him. Um, when he realizes who he's killed and how young he is and that he clearly, right, he has this flute and obviously he must have gone back for this flute. Um, he feels so regretful, um, at what he's done, even though, you know, this is what he had to do as a warrior. Right. Uh, he becomes a 
priest. So he sort of retires from being a warrior. He becomes a priest and um, goes searching for the shrine, you know, to sort of uh, mourn Atsumori. And he, in our play, our play starts with him showing up in the area where he's sort of looking for the shrine. Hmm. Um, And he runs into some grass cutters. uh, And he comments how beautifully they play the flute. Um, and grass cutters, it's the same. It's like shepherds in Europe, right? Okay. Shepherds are supposedly, you know, playing music. Pastoral whatever. People. Yes, we have these pastoral yes. images, yeah, that are sort of ridiculous, but also awesome. Um, well, grass cutters in Japan fulfill this pastoral image, right? Okay. So, uh, the priest comments, you know, you play this beautifully. That's very unusual for grass cutters. And one of the grass cutters says, well, but, you know, poetry talks about how grass cutters play beautifully. You should be surprised. Mm-hmm. Also, that's kind of classist to look down on grass cutters. <laughs> um, obviously, it's far more poetic and gorgeous and beautiful. This is my summary. Yeah. Um, and the priest says, you're right. You know, I apologize. It's lovely and amazing. The grass cutters leave. Um, a man from the village comes in. Um, the priest says, you know, there are just these grass cutters here. I'm sort of, you know, looking to pray for this guy and the... Um, Man from the village says, oh, well, you know, Atsumori is the one, you know, you should pray to here. Um, he died sadly. And the guy says, oh, I know I'm the priest who, you know, killed him in <laughs> life. Um, but then the young man, the man from the village, um, gives us the summary of Atsumori's life and death and what happened. Uh, because most of the play is so elaborately chanted by the chorus um, that... You know, the audience kind of needs a summary and slightly less yes. <laughs> flowery Japanese, right? Okay. So this character uh, is known usually as a Kyogen character. Kyogen is the comic funny side to know, right? So you have got the really serious, beautiful, slow-moving tragedy, and then the funny, funny physical comedy that we'll talk about next time. Yes. Um, so uh, this Kyogen character comes on, he speaks to the audience and, you know... I mean, it's still classical Japanese at this point, obviously, because this was written 600 years That's ago. what they were saying, um, yeah. Yes, but it is at least plainer, right? It is plainer than, than the rest of it. Um, so then he goes off uh, when the priest realizes that he's pretty sure that one of those grass cutters may actually have been Atsumori, right? Um, and so sure enough, the Kyogen character goes off after summarizing everything for us. Um, and on comes Atsumori in full warrior garb. So in the first act, um, he's unmasked in his sort of disguise as a grass cutter. Yeah. Um, this happens frequently in Japanese drama where someone comes on and we don't realize they're a ghost until the second act. Mm. And in the second act, they come on in their full garb, right? So he comes on this amazing ghost warrior costume, right? Ghost warrior plays are a genre of play. And Ziami um, is not only famous for everything he did and wrote and the plays he wrote, he also wrote manuals for no right so training manuals essentially um so fushikaden uh which the transmission of the flower um or the style on the flower anyway um it's an incredible book he goes through by age it's really brilliant because he says you know kids don't be hard on them let them have fun they're cute and audiences love them Right? Sure. As people get older, right? And he's men, of course, right? As men get older, as the kids get older, um, then you can start to train them in certain things, but you don't want to push them because you want them to enjoy it. Right? You don't want them to get upset. 
Um, don't give them hard rolls till their voice has changed because you don't want them to strain themselves. Hmm. You know, it's like when you start hitting your 20s, right? So when you get to college age, you can become really serious. Now you can really start practicing <laughs> and yeah. training. Um, but you start when you're like six, right? So you just train. We talked about last time, sort of in Raku, 30 years, you know? Yeah. Same thing sort of for no. You just keep training and training. Um, and no, also all male. The roles are inherited the same as we've sort of talked about before. Um, and... So Zayami um, sort of lays out this path, right, for training, and it's brilliant. Um, but one of the things he says is that ghost warrior plays are very hard. He's not sure that people should do them. And of course, he wrote the most famous one. <laughs> um, but the problem is, he says that a warrior is one way, right? Yeah. Um, and the problem is that for a ghost warrior, that you have to have the sort of gorgeous, right, dance drama essentially mm -hmm. um for the spirit that is also strong like a warrior and to do both of those things simultaneously is incredibly difficult and probably you shouldn't try okay <laughs> um and that's really the the crux of atsumori and why it's so amazing right because he is this noble musician who was a warrior who died in battle and how do you show both of those things as his sort of spirit dances out his story so when he comes back on in, in full garb, right, as the great sort of warrior ghost uh, with the mask and just this incredible costume. Um, and he may or may not have an actual sword. In no, you usually use your fan as your prop. But there is a family who perform Atsumori with a sword. And in that version, when he comes back on, um, he does use the sword. So in all the versions, he dances his death essentially. He recognizes the guy who killed him. Um, I mean, the guy says, right, that was me, and I'm sorry. And they're looking for forgiveness from each other, right? They have to forgive each other. That's how these things work. And so Atsumori dances out his death, and it's chanted by the chorus, and we get the whole story. So how he went back for his flute, and then by the time he got back to the shore, the ships had already gone, and then he realized there's an enemy warrior waiting for him on the shore, and he has to turn and fight, and how the other warrior strikes him down. Uh, and in the version with the sword, he really does draw his sword and uses it while dancing out the sword fight. And then at the end, he drops it, um, and they bow to each other, essentially, he and the other character, and Atsumori goes off stage, so they forgive each other. Right? And it's a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous dance drama. And the really incredible thing about how beautiful the poetry is, uh, it's chanted, and the precision of the movement with the chanting is so important. And that's why it takes so long to learn. Very similar, of course, to sort of ballet in the West or any form of modern dance in the West. Um, you really have to be just incredibly detailed in your movement work. And the idea is that it's so carefully choreographed, but you have to be able to show emotion in your movements. It's acting. Right? Obviously, it's acting. You have to be able to act. But in the West, we're used to this idea that dance and acting are somehow different, even though obviously dancers show emotion through movement. That is sort of the point. But we're kind of used to this idea that, like, you fling your arms around and that's acting, or, I mean, of course not. But, right, we just separate them somehow, acting and dance. Um, and in this case, the movement is choreographed onto the last detail, similar to dance. It is dance, of course, but you have to be able to project your character through it. I've made you watch no, I know. I I honestly found um 
the the one time that I did see a no performance. Yes. It was, you know, we talked a little bit about the alienation thing. Uh-huh. But it, it was like that for me. This uh-huh. felt so... Yes. Well, foreign. Yes. I mean, compared to anything I'd ever seen before. Right. Like, it was something I did not have any frame of reference for. And that, in the end, like, that... I think made it more fascinating than just seeing, you know, oh, here's a thing that they do. And, you know, that's similar to, you know, like sometimes you see things that maybe you don't have a frame of reference for lion dance, but you can make sense of it um, in a way that that no, you know, feels much, much different. Yes. Yeah. I remember because one of the times you came to stay with me, I was like, that's great. I'm free all week, but I am seeing every show at Lincoln Center that night because, yes, like to see yeah. all of the no plays that they were doing when they came, I had to go like three out of the four nights because they were doing different yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Right. It is so different. And I actually had a student tell me um, when we were covering no, that he went to a high school where the teacher really loved it and had sort of trained, I think, Suzuki style, um, which is a, an acting style that is adapted to Western theater as well. I mean, it's just made to be a sort of, but it's an acting style that's really grounded in the Zayami in a lot of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a movement style. And so this teacher had them do a play, a, um, you know, Western play, but sort of no style. And it had been written, there are a few that are written to be done in this way. Um, and mm-hmm. so they performed this as part of their um, you know, it was a high school sort of competition, regional competition or whatever. So there were like six or seven schools and they all went and performed their thing. And he said their school came in last <laughs> because the people who were there to judge it clearly just had no idea. Right. No, right. Of no idea. And he said, but the school that hosted the competition, the teacher there came up to them and said uh, he had also studied Japanese theater and loved what they did and was really impressed and essentially said, you know, he was very sorry that the judges didn't understand, but he thought it was phenomenal. And they should be really proud. Um, nice. Yeah. And so he came up and told me this after, you know, I think our first class on Japanese theater. Um, and I thought that was fantastic. But of course, it's also a reason why for example, right, decolonizing the syllabus and et cetera is a good thing, right? Because yes. you want those judges, whoever they were, to have at least a general frame of reference, right? Um, they don't have to like the style, but that they recognize that that's what the students are doing and can yeah. sort of commend them for it, right? Um, instead of just writing them off, essentially, which is clearly what happened, you know? Yeah. But at least this guy... You know, at least the guy who was at the school hosting it knew what was going Somebody on. Somebody got, got it. Yeah. yeah. So that was great. Um, and, you know, then this one student was in my class where we talked about Japanese theater. So then you get the sort of validation of, you know, yes, this is a really important thing. And I did it in high school. Right. So then it sort of becomes special or, you know, important in a yeah. way. That, um, yeah. But that, that whole idea, right, um, that... It's something that is that is around, right? Um, yeah. But you're right. We don't 
we don't sort of we're not as used to seeing it in the way we might be used to seeing certain other things. Mm-hmm. Um, like you're right, the lion dance. I mean, I think that's um, something that just shows up more probably in film. Yeah, you, you see it sometimes in the backgrounds of uh, different you know movies. Yeah. If you have a movie, often if you have a movie that has like a car chase through Chinatown or something. Yes. Um, <laughs> That's how they let you know there's, that it's Chinatown. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because yes. why, how else would you know unless that some, some people right. are walking around with a lion costume? Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. I have to say, but, yeah, lion dancing um, is, we could have included as dance drama. Um, it's brilliant and amazing. Um, and I, I generally try to go see some every year. But yeah. one year... Oh gosh, this was a couple years ago. We we went up to DC, um, and in one of the museums they had they had a whole thing going, and um, so we went and they had a few troops from different colleges there, and one of them was an all girls female lion dancing group. Oh nice! Which I cheered very loudly. Um, yeah, which was great, and you know it's another one of those reminders that. Um, the, you know, the ways in which traditions keep going, but also change a little bit, right? Yeah. <laughs> you can have female line dancers, just like there are today modern note troops. So the, the families are still going, as with kabuki, yeah. right? But there are sort of modern troops that do kabuki style or no style um, in Japan, as well as outside, um, but that do include women, you know, mm-hmm. and various things. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure, so here in Madison, there are, there's a couple of different groups of, you know, Chinese people. Um, there's a, there's a Taiwanese sort of association, and then there's um, a lot of the people who teach at UW-Madison yes. um, <laughs> are, you know, they're from China, from Beijing, right. I think. And I, I know that there's... I think a couple of different groups that do like um, stuff for kids. Yes. You know, Chinese school for kids. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the things that you can learn is lion dancing. Awesome. Um, yeah. Yay. Like, wow. Yeah, like I met a guy who he and his wife had adopted, I think, two daughters from China. Mm. And then as part of like helping them connect with their heritage, yes. they had enrolled them in lion dance so they were performing yay yep that is the best way (laughs) yeah um yeah richmond also has a chinese dance studio i think i mentioned this at the beginning but along with the many variations on dancing, many other types of dancing yeah and um they did a performance i mean i think every year we saw them maybe last year um where you know very much like if you go to a friend's ballet, you know, if one of your friend's kids or if your kids yeah. or whatever uh, is in ballet or something um, and you go to their school's dance, right? And so you see all of the different levels of dance, right? Yeah. Um, and like the different ballet classes, the different jazz classes, different modern classes. Um, so this was the same thing. So start off the kids and then went all the way to the, you know, older kids, but like, yeah. I call them all kids, right? But college age yeah. kids. <laughs> yeah, the senior yes. students yes. type of, yes. yeah. The more adult, but yes, still kids. Um, but the, oh my gosh, the, the teacher was is clearly brilliant and amazing. Um, but the little kids class all came out in different masks from Chinese opera. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. It was just amazing. And so they clearly had sort of been told to do things that they felt accorded with their mask, right? They'd been told what yeah. their mask was. And then they were to sort of hop around accordingly, basically. I mean, you know, um, and they had some choreographed stuff that they all did together, but also they were like very small. So yes, there was more hopping around than, you know, <laughs> dancing at that point. Yes, right? I can imagine that. As there yeah. is usually at that age. Yeah. Um, but it was just amazing. I mean, it was really fantastic. And then the sort of slightly older kids came out and kind of helped them out. Right. And then they went off and then, then it sort of went, but it was just like, fantastic um and i was like that's a brilliant brilliant thing and honestly i mean i have seen a lot of you know because growing up like some of my friends did dance and so i went to a lot of those recitals this is what they're called recitals. yeah um and the little kids like usually they come out they hop around a little bit and then you know and it's cute and adorable but um this really gave them something to do because we hop yeah. around with a mask on you're automatically performing in a way that it doesn't, you know, you just are. There's a yeah. performance happening. In a way that if you just hop around randomly in a colorful <laughs> outfit, <laughs> yes. you know, it's less of a performance, right? Um, but it was such a brilliant thing to do. And I was sort of thinking, you know, I don't, there must be a Western equivalent, but we tend not to use masks in performance, right? Mm -hmm. This is something that we somehow associate with other cultures Unless you're a superhero, right? Um, right. Or supervillain, of course. Um, which is weird. Like, where did masks go? I'm not sure. They got used all the way through the Middle Ages. Yeah. Um, why did they disappear? I don't know. I mean, at least full face paint certainly also gets used all the way through the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. But that kind of went away as well. You know, exceptions of, like, the Green Witch or... I don't know. That's the main exception I can think of. <laughs> Um, I guess a lot well, of the Wizard of Oz, actually, right? All silver. Anyway. Yeah. But uh, Beyonce's new music video has a bunch of people who are, like, painted. Oh, boy. Different, I haven't seen like, it yet. At least painted. The scene I saw, they were all painted white. Oh, cool. But. That's um, somehow something that, um, yeah. I mean, we've just, we've given up a lot of the great performance techniques that are out there, right? Masks are something you might not learn until college. You know, yeah. a lot of movement, unless you take dance. You know, you're probably not going to learn movement stuff. You know, right. There are a lot of those things we don't sort of do, right? Um, puppetry, you definitely don't learn. You know, no. you do when you're a toddler, and then you don't learn it again until college, maybe. Right. Or even afterwards, right. you know? Like, I I had only really encountered it in um, in being Don John Malkovich. Mm. The, um, the main oh guy is God. a puppeteer. Yes. And do you know what comes he's performing off at the beginning? What is he performing? Abelard and Heloise. Oh my gosh. We'll talk about that <laughs> in the future. Yes. Okay. Medieval. Yes. Okay, yes. Keep going. Yeah, no, but yeah. it like, I I don't know. I was probably in high school when I first saw it, and I thought that it was kind of a joke, right? Like, it yes. didn't occur to me that there were people who were grown-ups who seriously did puppetry, because it yep. was so far out of my realm of yes. experience at that point. Yeah. And that's such a shame, mm -hmm. right? Um, Julie Tamar went off to Indonesia and came back and eventually got around to doing Lion King. Mm hmm Right? And everyone said, oh my gosh, this is revolutionary. No one has ever seen anything like this. And that is true in a lot of ways. Yeah. 
but also isn't true because she, you know, got it all from Indonesia. Yeah. I mean, it's hers. She, of course, this isn't exactly, you know, Indonesian, but the general sense of the movement and the masks and all of these things, you know, we just don't do it in the quote unquote West. (laughs) But of course, by that, we really mean just parts of the West, because today we spent most of the time talking about dance dramas in the Americas. Mm -hmm. Right? Where they absolutely use masks and dance. And also animals, right? The You know, the warriors aren't really jaguars or eagles, but they wear the masks of it, you know. So this sort of <laughs> sense, um, somehow, of what what's possible or what exists, you know. What's... Puppets are for kids. Yeah. Right? Um, and masks somehow aren't even, you know... They're just for Halloween. Yeah, it is a little weird. Hmm. Um, okay. But here we are. Talking about masks. Now people will be more interested in these yes. things. Yes. We are part of hey. the solution. We hope. Yes. <laughs> All right. So we're going to call it there. It turns out we never talked briefly about anything. So when we said we're going to talk briefly about the Americas, that was a lie. Sorry. Right. <laughs> But next time we'll get to physical comedy and uh, and women and women on stage. Yes, yeah. that will and that will be very exciting. So, yes, yeah, so stay tuned. In the meantime, you can check us out on Facebook at Ask Medievalist. Um, you can check us out on the internet as askmedievalist.com. Um, we have a Twitter account at the same handle. Yeah, and feel free to send us a question, and you might be answered at great length in a future episode yes so (laughs) until next time everybody uh you know keep wearing your masks different type of mask yes but feel free to like theatrical paint a really cool picture on the front of the mask Mm -hmm. yes (laughs) and then keep it medieval Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. 